afternoon, good evening, good morning. This is Andrea Cates and Sean Moffitt, and in a, about a minute, we'll be starting the 2020 Future Proofing Awards webcast. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. This is Andrea Cates and Sean Moffitt, and we are about to start the Future Proofing Awards for 2020, the nominees session. And let me start off by talking about the topics. We are doing three of these all in one day in case you are feeling the Christmas slash holiday spirit if you are listening live and want to just listen in all day. We are broadcasting live from snowy Toronto, Canada. And we're going to talk about products, brands, channels, and growth. Today, I'm here, I'm Andrea Cates, and I'll, I'm also joined by Sean Moffitt and Joanne, who is all things around the community. And so welcome to the webcast. This is the first of three episodes today, and the notion is for us to talk about categories, products, brands, channels, and growth, innovation plus plus. And what we're doing today is establishing the foundational principles for what it will take for people to win in 2020 in each of these categories. We have experts with us that will talk about how we look at companies with regards to future-proofing. And for people who don't know our lexicon yet, let me define future-proofing, which is, as we call it, the practice of embracing trends and generating value faster, bolder, simpler, and friendlier than the rest of the industry. So we'll be talking today about this future beyond innovation, which is also the subtitle of the book that Sean Moffat and I are writing. We are talking about generating future-ready growth, value, and or impact. And so the notion is, how will we measure the success of this future-proofing? And then organizations, companies, and brands that are doing remarkable things. And so what we talk about is the future beyond innovation, which means plus plus when there's deep change, there's sustainable impact, there's value beyond just the economics and where there's a culture that sustains this for a longer term. And so the topics we talk about, brands, products, channels, and growth, and now let me throw it over to Sean Moffitt to talk a little bit about the Future Proofing Awards themselves. Hey, Andrea, good to have you up here in Toronto. Uh, and and as, as you're right, I think we should be having Toronto mess sessions in July next year because it's way too cold up here. Um, so thanks. I'm not seeing the deck quite yet, so I'm not too sure uh, what slide we might be on here, but I think we want to talk about the Future Proofing Awards. Today, we've got three webinars where we're bringing experts from around the world. I think we're from 12 cities around the world that we're bringing together in terms of nominating um, um, some brilliant people that are future proofers. Uh, in January, we are gonna throw this open to the rest of the world and potentially people that are on the webcast today. And we're gonna actually have an open nomination process of people that consider kind of brands in their regular day-to-day -day lives or maybe clients or people that they've worked with. And uh, they'll also get the opportunity to um, nominate a list of future proofers We'll uh, grab a list of 10 of them by the start of February, and then we'll winnow it down till April when we award the best. 
That's great. And so let me introduce the people that will be joining us today. And I'm hoping everyone can see the screen that we're sharing. Yep. Great. So first, let me give a quick intro to the three people who will be our panel of experts. And we'll do the topics one at a time. But let me just give the overview and, and give a quick wave. So Doyle Bueller, who's joining us from Sydney, Department Digital, and uh, he's a global digital brand architect. And the notion is, in addition to the book called uh, Breakthrough, <laughs> uh, that Doyle is an expert in understanding how you take digital brands and make them breakthrough brands. And so we'll be talking with him first about brands uh, in the first part of this, in the first segment. Jim Eichner, who is joining us from New York today, and I love what Jim writes about himself, that you know, he's passionate about the design of technology to support people at work. I think in the big picture of you know, who's gonna win this war of talent, technology, et cetera, he's got this deep expertise, including expertise in lean startup and large organizations, as well as business model design. And he's, what I love about him too, is that he's got a, a perspective as the journal and editor in chief for the research technology management. It's a journal that, that looks at broadly at leaders from corporations that are thinking about innovation and technology really deeply and has experience with Goodyear, Pitney Bowes, and Verizon, and he'll talk about this from a broad perspective. And then Mark Zawacki, who is, I met through the Silicon Valley 650 Labs, although he's joining us from Germany today. He is a global worker and, and insight le and uh, thought leader and has worked in 80 countries. I was looking on the map of where he's been. It's, it's pretty much all over in industries, including healthcare and energy technology for companies that you, we would all recognize like Intel, Union Bank of Switzerland. And something that's intriguing to me is his, his uh, vertical farming project. So I think we would look at him as an expert overall in organizational transformation. So first, let's talk a little bit about the topics, and each one will have a slightly different deep dive. One is this notion of why this category is important. Of course, we'll start with brands in a minute, but why it's important, not just because it's intriguing, but what really this category contributes overall to, to growth, value, and impact. The second is to think about some examples, and so we'll be hearing some perspectives from all over the world about who's doing a great job, people who are companies we recognize as well as maybe some folks in nooks and crannies that we haven't visited to save us the, uh, the plane ticket of going there ourselves. We love the fact that this is a global and regional group. And so we value the fact that people have eyes and ears all over the place. And looking at broadly the way that Sean and I like to is what are some of the forces, and I'll, I'll ask Sean to weigh in on this a little bit, this list. You know, what are the forces that are really driving change? Because there are different ways of looking at trends. We don't view ourselves as futurists per se, but we do believe that the early signs of what's happening in today's market are extremely significant for leaders to understand. And so this is all about practical news we can all use. And the thought is for everyone who's part of the listening group and the, the community that we're building is what, what can leaders really either can, should, might learn from these examples? What are the takeaways? So Sean, let me let you riff on that a little bit before we get into the first topic. Well, I think it's interesting we're doing this because uh, you know, 2020 is oftentimes associated with you know, laser focus and uh, we're moving into a new decade. And I think it's, it's never more true that I think we, we obsess about some of the small changes that are happening week to week, but we totally underestimate how things change over the next 10 years. 
I mean, if you look back over, if we had done this exact webcast in 2010, I'm wondering what type of uh, brands and companies and organizations we would have chosen. Uh, would, would Uber have been on our list? They might, they might not have even been on our radar screen just quite yet. And so I'm very intrigued based on our panel and the, the two panels after them to see um, maybe some of the jewels that I haven't even thought about in terms of where uh, we're moving to and, and what dynamics are driving them. I'm excited too. And uh, somebody asked me a question the other day, um, which was really been on my mind, which has really been on my mind, which is what is the thing that I love the most about work lately? And I think it's really how much I learn every day. I, ha I feel like today is going to be a day where we learn a lot from these sessions. And I'm in a personally in a very reflective mood this time of year about what's coming and, and some, of the, some of the questions that we get asked around the world in terms of what the heck's going on in this world and how can we be good leaders. So I'm, I'm hoping I can learn quite a bit. So let's jump into the topic of brands and the structures as follows. You know, I'll introduce Doyle, who's our resident brand person. And then we'll also open it up to Jim and Mark and Sean and to weigh in on some other topics with regards to brands. So let's jump in, Doyle. Um, why is this category important? Why, why do brands matter when it comes to being able to be a, a, a leading company, especially in this day and age where some people say that brands are dead, you know, that, that there is no such value that it used to be of brands. So why is this category so important? Well, I think what um, you said that, yeah, brands are sort of losing some of their significance. Um, I think, though, that there's the shift in place in terms of they're losing the significance from the big brand type thing. And people are finding these small little niche brands around the world that are able to help them um, solve their problem or help them with the challenge. And I think that's fundamentally what we're talking about with branding is how do we actually do that? What value is that company offering to their audience that allows them their customer to be able to engage in that, to understand their problem, to solve their challenges um, and that sort of thing. So fundamentally, that's why we interact. That's why we engage with companies is we want something from them. And what is that? Well, that's some kind of value. It's some kind of relief. It's some kind of, you know, release of pressure or whatever the case may be. And that's really what we're fundamentally looking for. So it's, 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 I believe it's one of the most important factors is what is that brand and how are you delivering it uh, to me as the consumer or as the business to business service provider, or whatever the case may be. Well, I love your expertise, especially we were, when we were just talking a minute ago about what might not have been on our radar 10 years ago and what might be on our radar 10 years from now. So at this very, mo <laughs> this very moment, I remember 10 years ago is, should there be e-commerce? You know, is that part of a brand? And Questions are quite different now. I think we've answered that one. Um, I'm interested in the intangibles of what brand represents when it's not a kind of household brand. You know, when we're thinking about the, especially in some places like business to business that are not the sexy side of brand, what, what are you seeing as really important right now when a business to business or a company with a different kind of business model becomes a brand that we value? Oh, that, that's a deep question for 12 a.m., <laughs> Well, let's start with a company that you like when it comes to a brand. <laughs> we'll we'll um, go back into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, and, and I think fundamentally, as I was trying to um, allude to earlier, a lot of it comes down to that value and, and you know, that inspiration that we get from them. And, and fundamentally, again, we're not going to interact with brands that don't provide a fundamental value to us. And that's why 
you know, it may not necessarily be a cheapening of brands, but it's really how can we focus in on those brands that are able to provide that. So I think that we're sort of seeing and building more of sort of a relationship specifically with that brand because we're able to understand what they're doing, but it's not, doesn't necessarily have to be the, the Nikes and the, you know, UPSs of the world either. It can be smaller regional type brands that really kind of get the job done um, from that. So, I mean, in terms of a, a brand itself, there's, there's quite a few. And I, I, when you asked this question, I really wanted to kind of dig deep and see what was sort of in, in, in Australia and that sort of thing. And um, one of the ones that I found is that it's a lot about experience and it's a lot about community and it's, it's really about tying into, you know, what's really important and what kind of really ties the groups together, the people together. And again, whether you're B2B, this one is a B2C um, type thing, but, um, Vino, vinomofo.com is, uh, I'm not sure if it's actually overseas, but it's an Australian based company and they're really sort of a cheeky wine company and they're really kind of having fun and their, their, uh, visuals and their marketing and, and their overall brand is that we're the, the cheeky guys, right? We're the people that are going to have some fun out there. Um, we know you love your wine and we want to help you enjoy it as best as possible. So they're really kind of getting that message out there in their promotions and how they're developing that value that we're just not like a, an old wine cellar where, you know, you can get your, uh, you know, 50 year old bottle of red or whatever the case may be. It's very, it's about the environment. It's about the community. It's about having fun. It's about, you know, celebrating wine and life and everything else like that. So that'd be I one like of my that. first ones. I like that. And I hadn't heard of it. And it's funny because last week we were judging uh, one of the uh, startup competitions in Copenhagen. And one of the brands that came up, it's not a company yet, but it was a concept was this notion of, you know, how can we win when we can't win in size, right? Mm. Because not necessarily everything that comes regionally is something that can scale to uh, to size. I don't know what that is. Um, but, um, but one of the things that's, I think, really important is that they had this kombucha company and kombucha hadn't hit Denmark yet. You know, it's not mm -hmm. a thing yet. And so whereas in the Bay Area, it's kind of already a thing. The question was, how do you take something? Do you, do you take a brand from somewhere else and literally clone it, copy it or, or acquire it? Or do you develop something that's unique to your region and grow it homegrown and develop strength because you have these, as you said, relationships, local attitude, um, a following. And as you were also saying, this B2B thing where if you have the distribution locally with the places where people gather, then the product gets inserted. That's a, that, that can be a really strong regional brand, even if it doesn't become the, you know, the largest global provider or it could be acquired. So I think that's, I think it's great. Is there another one that you like, Doyle, in terms um, of the brand? Yeah, yeah. And just one of the things, one of the shifts that I'm seeing too is, is that there is obviously the, um, um, the ability to, even though we're in the digital century, the digital economy, all that good stuff, we're seeing more and more of sort of the companies that are able to group those experiences together. It's not just completely online. It's not just completely offline as well. And one of the other companies that does that, again, another um, Australian startup, um, actually from Perth, Australia, where I am right now, um, is uh, Canva.com. And they're, they're a graphics design suite. And, and back in 2004, 2003, one of the companies I had in Canada, we developed sort of the, the foundational infrastructure for this type of thing, which is a, simply, it's a design studio, right? But fundamentally what it does is it 
allows um, companies from around the world to be able to create their Facebook images and create PDF documents and the web and internet and marketing is all visual, right? So if you've got a tool that's actually able to provide that, that's a huge relief for a lot of businesses. And you can share documents, you can share images, you can you know, use different um, uh, templates and designs and all that kind of stuff. So they're really building this super strong community of pe business people that just simply want to get graphics out. And they've created this tool that's just fundamentally fascinating because it gives them that power. It democratizes um, visual design. Well, and the other thing about Canva, because they've been getting a lot of uh, no, uh, news, they've been in the news lately because A, they got so big, B, they're a yeah. platform from a different perspective. Usually we think of platforms only in software, but this is a community that was built and also it's profitable, which is not necessarily the case with all platforms in the, you know, and I, when did they start? Let's see, 2012, it was it founded. Was it 20, 2011, 2012. Yeah. Yeah. They and, came out and, of the University of WA, Western Australia. Well, I love the story too, not just because, is, this, is it a female founder? Yes, Melanie Perkins, yeah, because yeah. yeah. um, she's the one who's been in the news and I think that it's really interesting to see the story that she tells of how hard it was to raise funds in the beginning, how many doors she had to knock on and what I thought was great, uh, I shared this with a friend, is that the way I heard it at least, she went on some sort of extreme sports um, outing to try to find some investors and so she had to learn kite surfing <laughs> to try to meet the right people to make the right connections. So it's a, yeah. it's a great story. I hope that I'm sure there'll be a movie about it at some point, but yeah, that's a great example. So let me switch a little bit. Let me let Sean do a couple follow-ups as well before we switch to the next topic. Those are really great examples. One smaller and local and one, some, one company that's Australian that started off with a great story and, you know, a, a, a true startup story that uh, has grown really huge and has a very loyal following is profitable and, has a spokesperson who comes off, at least in the press, as a really great kind of today's future-proofing kind of leader. Yeah, yeah. down-to-earth type person. So yeah, yeah. And I mean, they're they're taking the tool and they're it's not it's beyond the tool, right? It's it it kind of looks at the platform, it looks at the people, it looks at the community. How can you actually grow it from there? And fundamentally, that's what brands need today. Great. Well, let me throw it to Sean. Sean, any follow-up questions before we get to the next topic? I love the fact that Dora went local, right? We could have all said, oh, we love Google. Google's such a good, or Amazon. So I'm, I'm glad we've gone off the, uh, the radar screen to um, two brands that uh, Canva I'm aware of. I was not aware of, uh, you know, uh, was it Vino? Was it Vino Mofo. Vino Mofo. The two I had on my list, and maybe I'll, I'll throw it quickly back to you, Dora, because I think you, you have an appetite for both brands. Um, I'm a huge sports fan and I just find, uh, of all the sports leagues, you know, I'll, I'll probably write another book about this one day about how slow moving sports is and how locked to tradition they are. I find the NBA is one of those leagues that just says, you know what, we're going to throw the cards up. And whereas most other brands, sports brands are kind of in entrenched mode and try to get as much out of, uh, revenue from TV. NBA is looking at you know, how do we be big in China? And I know they've had some challenges this year, but just being there in and of itself is important. And um, even to the point where they've looked at it and said, we don't need an 82 game season anymore. We're going to do a mid season playoff in the middle of winter. So people don't feel like it's the dog days of winter in NBA. So I love their leader, Adam Silver, in terms of just being able to look at a different world and being able to reapply kind of stuff that may work elsewhere. And the other brand I had on my list was Spotify. Uh, I just 
I love them personally. I use them personally. And I just find not only as a service, but as a discovery tool and something that's personalized for me. Um, you know, that's the number one tool in terms of how I find new music. So maybe I'll, I'll kick those two back to you, Doyle, in terms of whether or not you, uh, you have some, some affection for both. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, to me, personalization is a key ingredient of trust, right? And without that, we've sort of seen the shift from everybody trusts everybody online to nobody trusts anybody. <laughs> so personally, I think we're at this stage of what I call zero trust, right? It's like there's, we have to build it, we have to start it from scratch. So if you're able to do that through personalization, and it's not through you know, saying your name or whatever the case may be. It's, it's like you said, Sean, it's identifying what's really important to you. And I love Spotify just for that specifically, right? Because you can listen to a, a song. I, I, um, I Shazam a song and then I'll go to Spotify and it'll find me like songs that are similar to it. And it's like, oh, wow, this is so amazing kind of thing. It pulls the song out of, out of thin air and then tells you what other songs are, are actually uh, useful. So I actually had that on my list, Sean. I'll keep, I'll let you know that uh, I love that. Um, in terms of sports, like I think that that's really important. They need to sort of step outside of what they're fundamentally doing and how they're delivering value. And if, if that means a half season or splitting the season, I mean, you saw TV programs do that uh, several years ago. They started with the they went to the mid-season break and then they continued for another three months. So they were able to kind of double the time that people were actually able to watch TV or watch that specific program. So fascinating stuff. <laughs> so what I'll do now, I think Jim, if not, um, if, if I'm not jumping too quickly, I think what we'll do is move to channels and let Jim Eichner weigh in on this. Um, and then once again, open it a little bit up and Doyle, we'll come back to you in a little bit as well for some round robin stuff in a little bit. So Jim, um, let's start off right away with some of your favorites in the category of channels. Channels is another one of those topics that you're thinking, you know, nobody pays attention to channels. How is channels this really important component of future-proofing? And yet, as you and I know, channels can be some of the most powerful ways that companies bring to scale the innovative ideas that they've got. So what are some of your favorites? Yeah, okay, let me just start with a few. So, Sean, I, I hate to uh, start with Amazon, but I, I want to start with Amazon <laughs> anyway. And the, the reason is, uh, you know, they're, they're obviously known for really creating the most effective e-tail channel uh, and starting with books and then moving from there to CDs and then to everything. The thing that I find uh, about them as a consumer, I find it to be a very effective uh, easy to use uh, channel. But the interesting thing to me was the way Amazon took their channel, their most valuable asset, the eyeballs, uh, you know, their customer base, and they opened it up to their, uh, to their competitors. Uh, I know it was a contentious thing even within Amazon to do that. Uh, but their logic behind that was customers want more selection than we can provide and uh, and therefore the way to uh, to best satisfy the needs of the customers is to open up the channel. And then, you know, to your uh, future proofing concept of perpetual refresh, they're continually seeking to make everything uh, work better, not just the website, but the experience of uh, of delivery and uh, and finding things. So, you know, 
Bezos famously says it's always day one, uh, but their willingness to really step outside of everybody else's assumptions about how things should be done with uh, opening up the channel, then opening up fulfillment by Amazon, and uh, is to me an impressive leveraging of, uh, of their channel in a way that I think few others would even think about doing. So I'll jump so in and, and well, I'll jump in and, and uh, engage about this for a second because one of the slides and Jim, you might have been in the room when I showed this particular slide I've been using for the last couple of months. I think Mark definitely was. There's a slide I used with Jeff Bezos that says, your margin is my opportunity. And it usually causes an uproar in the group. It's like people get angry about it. And it's like, look, you know, that's just the way it is. There's no rules about who figures out the best way to establish a business model in any given area. And so it's, you know, the, the way of looking at it in a positive way is that's fair game. You know, once you develop a channel that is like, I just keep hearing that, that uh, DHL and UPS, that Amazon is doing it themselves now i'm not sure you know they're doing a lot more of their own delivery they're doing a lot more over the road trucking and, and so forth and so uh, you know it's a everybody who does work with Anna, amazon as one of their partners uh, always needs to be a little concerned you so know, so a yeah. question is you know because we talk about this that in one moment somebody's your channel provider in the next moment, you're competing against them, right? So you're, you're cooperating with them, you're competing with them, et cetera. But so in looking at future-proofing specifically, and when we look at people who are, obviously Amazon is one of the big behemoths in this, what is an element of Amazon that even smaller players can learn from? Well, to, to me, that they're kind of relentless focus on the customer, on, you know, if the customer wants more selection, I'll figure out how to do it. The customer wants faster delivery. I'll invest in faster delivery. If uh, you know pricing is important, I'll invest in that. And so there's sort of a that that relentless focus on the customer, and then they're willing to think very creatively about their assets, uh, whether it's their channel that we were talking about here or their infrastructure, whether that's the uh, the infrastructure for delivery or their infrastructure for web services. So to me. Their view is everything we do, we can turn into a business. And I think that that's a, a, a pretty future-proofing way of thinking. Yeah. Um, well, let's do, let's do another one. What's your, what's your okay. second favorite? So another one, and I'll take, I have a lot of experience working with larger companies, so I'll take another larger and then a smaller one. So to me, Procter & Gamble is another example, and that probably will strike people a little bit odd. Obviously, they have a very strong supermarket uh, channel. Uh, the thing that I found in interesting about P&G was their willingness to say, well, how do I leverage that channel? And they're turning to uh, open innovation and connect and develop. So they very aggressively, very systemic, systematically across all of their lines of business uh, went out and uh, looked for products that could work through their brand within the channel and ran it through their R&D to make things better uh, ran it through their marketing engine to promote it better and leverage their channel uh, to create significant new value for the, for the company. So then again, that was someone saying, look, I have a channel. I know I'm strong there. I want to stay strong, but how do I leverage that to create growth for the company? And to me, that's a, a really good example. I don't know of others who are using open innovation combined with their channel in quite the way they're doing it. 
So I know when, when Mark chimes in a little bit, he's got a lot of experience in, try, in terms of, you know, where does innovation in this future-proofed way reside? You know, does it inside the company, outside the company, a combination? And we'll get into that, I'm sure. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask the same question about this. So imagining that some of the people in our community are not as large as P&G, probably very few companies are. Um, what do you view as one of the, the, the forces of change? Because you talked in Amazon about the fact that they're, you know, they're following the customer. What is driving the, the unique contribution with this open innovation? What's their big why, do you think, at P&G? I think my, my view is that they recognize that uh, a lot of people are innovating outside of their walls, the technology-driven innovation and even the kind of customer-centered and design innovation that they did were not generating enough to move the needle on a brand, on a company as big as P&G. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people could benefit from that. You know, there, there's a, an importance for smaller companies to maintain focus, I, I get that. But um, I think that there's uh, an opportunity, and I'll talk about it in the third example too, to sort of leverage more what's happening out in the world uh, the Swiffer was a combination of things that came from design, from open innovation, you know, in uh, a company in Japan. Uh, and so, you know, there, that willingness to, uh, to open up the boundaries of your corporate wall to get people to stop uh, getting locked in, that was, uh, that's a future thinking sort of approach to the world that leverages okay. the channel, which is their biggest asset. All right, so let's do your third. My third uh, harks back, I think, to Canva and to kite surfing and to communities. And it's a company called Threadless, which many of you may have heard of. It's a t-shirt community. Uh, and so their channel is their community. They're, the people who are part of it design the t-shirts. The people who are part of the community vote on the t-shirts and decide which ones will be produced and which ones won't be produced. And they're the customers, they buy the t-shirts. And uh, I came across them twice. One, uh, I work with people at, at Eric Von Hippel at MIT and he really studies user innovation and users who innovate. And this community really is a bunch of, enables a bunch of designers to innovate in the space of t-shirts. And then also, I worked at Pitney Bowes at the time. They ship a boatload of t-shirts at that time and it must be, uh, must be up from there. It's, uh, they were shipping 10,000 a month, and that's years ago. And uh, they were innovating around our postage meters because our postage meters didn't meet their needs. So they hacked the postage meters too. So it's a, you know, not the, the secure parts of them, but the usability parts of them. So I, I think the key though is this idea of community, uh, which is a brand concept. It's a channel concept. It's a design concept uh and uh you know you it's interesting the canva person managed kite surfing because kite surfing design is now done almost entirely by a user community so anyway so the community is channel is my the third i would say really interesting well just in the interest of time i'd like to get mark to weigh in on the next topic and then we'll have some more conversation around the fourth topic for a round robin and some q a um growth is two things. It's number one, an output of all the things we've already talked about, because a lot of people view growth as an endpoint in, in, in and of itself, although that's not the only way to judge success. But growth is certainly something that 
is one of the first topics because that whenever whenever we get in, into conversations about future proofing, the goal isn't to be innovative. The goal is to be able to grow your company, bring things to scale. So, Mark, in in your words, because your perspective um, as an expert in I would call it transformation and and definitely this global perspective, um, what what are the themes around? growth that you think are so important for us to think about as we go into this 2020? Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. So, you know, I would start by when I, when I look at businesses from a first principles perspective, all roads do lead to growth. Um, we innovate because we want to grow or we do a big cultural change program because we hope our people are higher, more higher performing and we can grow. We launch new products so we can grow. Uh, we do an organizational transformation or a digital transformation so we can grow. Um, in my mind, everything's wired back to growth. And it's been more fashionable lately to, to add you know, CSR elements to that, which are, which are fine. Um, you know, capital markets work on growth, right? We put a dollar in, or let's say we put $100 into something, be it a startup or be it a very mature company. And at some future date, we want more than $100 back out. Now that startup's going to be a riskier endeavor, but in, in each you know in each uh, uh, option I just gave, growth is the metric, right? We don't get the the hundred dollars back if those if those businesses do not grow, and so that's the first thing to to say. Um, I, I suppose the second comment is it's um, extraordinary extraordinarily difficult. Uh, there was some research published by Rita McGrath, uh, she was um, at Columbia at the time, uh, now she's at NYU, but she published in HBR back in 2012, something called the Growth Outliers. She went into FactSet, she grabbed approximately 5,000 companies with at least 1 billion US in revenue, and the, the results were pretty shocking. She took out all the M&A and inorganic growth, as we call it, and looking only at organic growth, she determined that only 8% of large organizations around the world could grow by 5% per annum for five consecutive years. 92% of these large organizations aren't growing by a pretty simple measure. Um, you push that out to 10 years and only one half of 1% could grow by 5% five, by 5 per year organically over a 10-year period. So, so it's incredibly hard to grow. And we began to peel that onion, and, and the short answer is it's a structural problem. The day-to-day the, the, the -day business, which is very short-sighted around this quarter's result, is really built for predictability, reliability, stability, and it's got its eye on this quarter. You know, we're closing this year up uh, soon around the world. I thought it was on uh, mute. Uh, and, you know, then January 1st, we'll start thinking about the second quarter, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we're seeing, the big trend, the big aha now is we're seeing organizations starting to kind of morph or split into two. I've got this old legacy business. I'm going to continue to turn the crank on it. But out here on the edge, I'm going to go see how many new billion dollar, billion euro, billion pound, take your, take your denominator, how many new businesses I can build on the outside to replace what we believe to be you know, long, slow decline businesses that, that are ticking over in the, in the low single digits. And, and so this is a trend. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty early emerging trend, but we're starting to track a couple dozen companies around the world, big companies 
that are really trying to, to grok this, uh, this model of so-called core edge. So they, they believe that it's hard to grow in that, in that traditional industrial age pyramid for, for lots and lots of reasons. So they're trying to break out growth engines on the, on the edge, as it were. Um, so give us, some, yeah, give us some examples, because this is where I, and I, I love the fact that I, I believe your perspective, I think everyone on the panel today, you know, you're, you, you are future proofers. You see ahead of what a lot of people are, are not caught up with. Sure. So, so what are some companies that we should be paying attention to in this growth area? Look at, uh, look at AXA, uh, AXA Insurance, the giant multinational uh, Paris-based uh, insurance group. 135,000 people. Uh, they historically been in a pretty slow growth uh, industry They're, and they have headwinds and risks on their business. They're saying, you know, the, the risk profile of insurance is changing. People are healthier. They're living longer. That's going to, you know, that's going to affect uh, premiums in the health insurance space. Cars are becoming safer. That's going to affect motoring insurances. <clears throat> and they said, we have 135,000 people. There's no evidence we can change them. There's no consultant that showed us a proposal on how to evolve or, or change that many people. So let them go turn the crank on the existing business. And out here on the edge, on the outside, we're going to create a, a new business unit. This is called AXA Next, N-E-X-T. And they very cleverly put all of the tools of growth under a single uh, uh, CEO reporting only to the board. This is all what I call buy, build, partner, and invest activities. So buy, they have, a, they have a, a budget of up to a billion euros a year to buy anything high growth that they think will accelerate their new business ideas. Uh, uh, build says, look, there's 30 or 40 things we could go build in the insurance space, but instead of relying on an accelerator or something, let's build them ourselves. Let's get the right people to join these teams. Let's give them equity. So, you know, a corporate exec can leave their job and go do one of these startups. By the way, you're going to be working on startup wages. And in return, I'm going to give you equity. So, you know, entrepreneur is a French word, but let's see if our corporate execs are real entrepreneurs and are going to take a, you know, a haircut on salary for equity. Um, and that's been a wildly successful program. And, and what's really interesting to us is how all of those activities are tied together and all four of those levers, buy, build, partner, and invest, are under a single executive so they can make uh, the right, the right trade-offs. And so they're, so they're integrating all of those growth tools under a, under a single entity uh, run by a, a Guillaume Brody uh, in, in, in Paris. Another one I'd point you to is uh, AIA uh, Insurance. They were a typical uh, healthcare insurer, and they've evolved into the, uh, the wellness and prevention space. And it's one of the fastest growing companies right now uh, in, uh, in North America. Um, a third one I'd point you to is uh, Orsted, which is an energy group uh, based in uh, Copenhagen. And Orsted's the old dong business uh, for, for those that know the, the, the Nordic space. And what Orsted did was they were only five years ago, they were 90% um, domestic and they were 90%, let's call it black, uh, coal, coal and traditional uh, energy sources. And in five short years, they've reshaped their entire portfolio. So now they're 90% international. And they've just, uh, in the last six months, gone 100% uh, clean, 100% green. So they've completely shifted their portfolio. It's unlocked a tremendous amount of growth. Uh, and they're, they're in the... Uh, 
uh, high teens in terms of annual growth rate, uh, CAGRs, compound annual growth rate, uh, based on this new strategy. So Orsted in the energy space uh, here in Europe is, uh, is really exciting. Uh, and then a fourth one I would uh, suggest is uh, a Swiss uh, company that uh, PMI, uh, you'll probably know their, their product Marlboro cigarettes, but Philip Morris Inc., we, PMI we call it. And they said they're getting out of the cigarette business. Uh, cigarette consumption globally is in free fall. It's dropping by, by three to 5% per annum uh, across the board. If, if you look at any major uh, market where, where cigarettes are consumed. And they, uh, and this is, all these cases are public information. You can find, find them online if you look. But what, what the leadership team at Philip Morris has said is, um, we're gonna go into the healthcare space. We're literally going to, you know, reinvent the entire portfolio to 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 go into the healthcare space, and they they have an incredibly uh, sound proposition how to do that. And uh, I suspect they're not going to call it Marlboro Healthcare, mind you. But, uh, <laughs> but what they're <laughs> yeah. What they what they basically said is, look, we we have, we work with a half a million farmers around the world that sell a a high quality agri or a, a high margin agricultural product. And based on the, you know, the location of and, and, and uh, climates of, of where tobacco is grown, what other, uh, what other high margin uh, agriculture products can be grown there that are actually helpful uh, and, and, you know, have, have a medicinal value or supplement value, et cetera. And, and, What's interesting is um, because this industry historically has been highly regulated, one of the core competencies they have is actually product traceability. So, you know, you buy a pack of Marlboro cigarettes anywhere in the world and they can tell you what hectare of land that was grown on and when the crops were, were uh, the leaf was uh, extracted, where it was manufactured, what herbicides and pesticides went on that. So they're going to have product traceability now, not on tobacco products, but on health-related products. Um, it's just fascinating. And, and the early signs on how that's growing are, 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 are quite phenomenal. They've already started. Uh, they're kind of in, in uh, they're not releasing the, the, the figures on that. Uh, I, I've been privy to, to what those plans are, and it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. So AIA, uh, AXA, Orsted, and PMI were four. I was going to mention Google and and uh, and Netflix. Netflix is growing extraordinarily well right now, primarily through their own content and also international. But uh, I mentioned Google. Uh, we all know Google, of course. But I mentioned it because there was a very telling article that came out just in the last couple of weeks, and and it has to do with this core edge model that I described earlier. Um, who's arguably the best investor? Uh, the growth investor in the last 50 years. People would say Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway. And if we, if we remember about three or four years ago when Google uh, organizationally changed to Alphabet, the holding company, and Google, the, the, the AdWords was just a business unit under this you know, conglomerate-like structure. Conglomerates are kind of back in vogue again. Um, the article that, that was in the press last month said, Google's inspiration for that was Berkshire Hathaway. And, and Sergey, Larry, and Eric all flew out to Omaha and met with Warren uh, Buffett and his team. And they said, you know, how do we structure Google to be like Berkshire Hathaway? 
And, and, you know, it's a very simple model. It's like, I, you know, Berkshire Hathaway and now Google is saying at the, at the center, at the core is a pretty small organization. And all we're going to do is very efficiently deploy capital to high growth businesses that may be independent from each other, because that way we're going to build a portfolio of high growth companies. And the traditional assumptions that these need to be interlocked or interrelated um, may go by the wayside. We need to re we, we may need to rethink, you know, some traditional assumptions we had that, gee, there must be synergies. Um, maybe not. You know, the world's most prolific investor in terms of getting growth has a portfolio of unrelated assets. Well, I think that this is not just, I mean, one, one of the things that we talked about before this whole session started was we will definitely run out of time before we run out of topics. I think that what you're talking about, and I'll extract a, a little bit of this notion of some of the leadership tips. I mean, the traditional thinking is that you have to know what your core capacity or your core capabilities are. That's pretty much out the window. Um, the notion of specializing and having everything within the four walls and executing, executing, and also trying to get people to have a, a mixed focus. This core edge thing kind of challenges that, that traditional thinking. The notion of, you know, stick with your knitting, uh, which is something that we all learned, at least I learned when I was, you know, in strategy, the corporate strategy was, that's outside of our core competency. Well, it might still be very important in the portfolio, even if you can't figure out a way to connect all the dots. And I think the fourth thing is all of these really interesting flips you know I, I i was not familiar with pmi and this strategy i think that it's had you told me that it was two truths and a lie <laughs> that would have been the one i'm like yeah that's not the that's not true but the fact that that's that that's happening i think is is really inspiring so as i said this is the way to introduce the thinking for these categories um i am going to open it up for a little bit of a round robin because we have about 15 more minutes but i think rather than trying to de delve deep into every single topic I think it would be great for each of you to have, you know, like in a debate, you have a rebuttal, like, okay, so what did you just hear that you really want to say something about? I can see Jim has something to say. Uh, Jim, <laughs> so Jim, what, what are your reactions uh, to, I, to this whole conversation? I, I, first, I'm very inspired by what you were uh, saying, Mark, and I do believe in the idea that uh, you know, when people talk about trying to both innovate and operate at the same time, uh, it, I think people have found it's a myth to think that it's going to be done within the same entity. It just doesn't, uh, the, the core uh, dominant business model squeezes out the, uh, the new, unless you're really leveraging uh, a core asset. So I think the real challenge when you make that structural separation, you know, what Tushman calls structural ambiguity, when you make that is how do you uh, leverage the assets that you have in your core business in order to make it even more successful. So I, I actually disagree, Andrea, with your comment that the idea of core capabilities is out the window. And I'm not so certain that, uh, that conglomerates with no synergies will fare much better this time around than they did the last time around. Uh, but we'll see, we'll see. Uh, I do think that uh, successful businesses will have to navigate, uh, will have to do some structural separation, but we'll have to think carefully about what that relationship is between the two businesses and manage accordingly. 
That's, yeah, uh, yeah that's, I'm, I'm, ex I'm excited. I am actually really excited to see. I think we're in a bit of a transition now as well. Um, and I'll, I'll qualify one thing without sounding defensive, which I know it will sound. But um, my qualification is that at least the traditional, um, you know, what, what are you good at used to be a little bit narrow. I think if the question were asked to Amazon, what are you good at? And it was books, they would never be shipping. They would never have AWS, right? I mean, right. that's not the right. way that that my original definition, but not to sound defensive. <laughs> Mark, go ahead. Yeah, and Jim, just to go back and forth on this a little bit, when we, when we watch these edge organizations being set up, they're being very deliberate about keeping it at arm's length. And you know, if you picture two concentric, two circles, the core and the edge, keeping them separate and keeping them apart, and, and, and the, the emerging thinking is maybe never bring them back. And, you know, we can have the debate 30 years ago, conglomerates, you know, they, they were buying, they were borrowing on too much cheap capital and ultimately they crashed, right? Airlines yeah. are buying hotels and vertically integrating all this. But think about this, um, because organizations will tell me, Mark, we're building some stuff on the edge. And when it starts to scale, we're going to, quote, bring it back in. And, and, and I'm actually seeing a rejection of that thesis. Think about this. Why would you take a high growth asset on the edge and bring it into a low growth environment with those very operators you described that have never in fact managed a high growth I, asset? I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I, yeah. I would use one of your examples as uh, to, to illustrate my point, the example yeah. of PMI. They have a core asset. It's relationships with farmers. It's the ability to trace product and high value product, et sure. cetera. Leveraging that asset requires a very careful negotiation between the two circles, even if you know, they're managed differently. There's going to have to be some way in which that asset is shared and managed. But I think that's a, that's a, a great strategy because yeah, it leverages enough. an asset and it enables them to have a chance of success. So I'm going to jump uh, to Doyle and just ask for any anything that you've been dying to say in not not rebuttal, but it's not really a debate, but sort of you know now that we've all said some things, what are your what are your kind of parting thoughts about about the topics and what's important in terms of future proofing in any of the categories that we talked about? Oh, that's not a great question, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's, it's late in, at night. Well, let's just put it this way. Any, anything you wanted to respond to in terms of what Jim or Mark said, maybe that's well, an easier one. It was way. quite fascinating, actually, Mark, when you were talking about the, um, uh, the level net growth of 5%, I think it was for 8% of companies that are able to sustain it. Was that correct? Correct. Yeah. So I, I was just curious, like, how do we actually magnify that? How do we amplify that? Are there, were there critical factors that, um, I think you might've said some of them, but, but really sort of what, what was the, the underlying reason that we weren't getting there or those that were there were doing that? Those, those that, those that could achieve the, um, the 5% growth for five years in a row, and that was 8%. But if you, if you put the clock out to 10 years, that drops to one half of one half, 1%. Yeah. Uh, but, but there was yeah, yeah. some patterns. Uh, number one, there was stability in the leadership team. You know, we weren't bringing a, a, you know, a, new, a new CEO, we brought a new CFO, you know, every couple of years. There was, predictably, there was consistent, there was a stability in the management team, number one. Number two, they were quick to make some early bets. So they were really into experimentation. You know, let's, let's go try some things. They weren't resting on their laurels. Number three, they were using that portfolio of, you know, of, of newer high growth things 
to replace the declining revenue in the core. Um, they were very acquisitive, uh, but they weren't making big bets. Again, they were, they were doing you know, smaller tuck-in acquisitions, and they were quite often doing those in new markets as a, as a point of entry, thinking, I'm gonna buy something small and then figure out how to, how to scale it quickly. Uh, th that was really a summary of, uh, of, of what, uh, what the lessons learned were from those 8% yeah, that could go so, for five. Yeah. So making, making, it easy, making it easy to do a, a sort of quick summary, Doyle, um, yes. you know, anything of what you just heard either uh, remind you of a highlight from what happened in 2019 or it's something that inspires you to look forward to 2020. Um, well, I would say that typically what we need to look at is, is personalization of the brand or creating trust. Rather, we have to start building that trust. And for brands that are w w willing to do that, that's where they're going to see sort of more uptake. Um, trust comes through personalization, privacy, and permission. And in a lot of cases, a lot of businesses are failing. So I see that this is what's going to be um, sort of one of the big milestones coming up in 2020 is how to actually businesses develop, look at a strategy for trust uh, in the digital space. Well, I want to thank all the panelists. We were absolutely 100% sure that this would be interesting. Check, check, check. We were absolutely 100% sure that we would run out of time. Check. And we would look forward to the conversations because we'll be using this guidance to help find some other companies that we would consider for the awards. And hopefully we've established some relationships with all of you to help us be part of this community of looking around the world for who is ex an, an example of doing all of these categories well for the award. So thanks to the panel and I'm going to turn it over to Sean to help close us out. So thank you very much, Mark and Jim and Doyle. Yeah, I mean, fascinating discoveries, guys. Um, I love it when I, I feel like I'm versed on a topic and then I, I get around a group of other minds that actually opened my mind up to a couple of different things. So um, I do, uh, one, one thing that'll be interesting, I find, um, and maybe I'm speaking as a Canadian here, where both of these are actually disproportionately more Canadian and kind of the disappointment of growth. And uh, I don't know how many brands I would put under the future proofing awards in these two categories. I'm curious to know where they go in the future. One is the legalization of cannabis, which is generally becoming a global concept and probably a very scalable concept. I don't think anybody has knocked that one out of the ballpark yet. And uh, blockchain, and I was one of them. I was there from the start going, this is going to be a transformative technology. I think we put it on our, our list as the third most important technology. By and large, I find that uh, it's kind of been um, a little bit disappointing as a category and certainly entrance within the category. So that would be my maybe our follow-up contribution a decade from now, who won that battle. Um, I know we may have some Q&A later, but um, just a, a quick uh, tour de force in terms of what's happening. We will have an open platform built um, come January that you will be able to nominate your own fans. And so that's uh, what's gonna be happening in uh, over the holidays. And so here's how it runs. Hopefully we'll uh, have some open nominations come in. We'll judge those. We'll interview some of the um, um, finalists and then declare the winners in April. So uh, stay tuned on the future proofing awards. Um, it was interesting. Uh, Mark, I definitely want to get you back into something that we do because one of the declared uh, missions of future proofing next this year is to look at four different um, foresight ventures. I know our future of work one is going uh, right now and there's about 35 dedicated passionate people that are mining the world of what does the workplace look like two years, five years, 10 years from now. We're gonna do some stuff on AI. Any sports fans out there, we are going to do a 
how does technology meet sport and where is it all going to go? But very intriguingly, the scale and growth stuff that you were talking about um, definitely need to um, tap into your brain at some point in the future. Um, myself and Andrea have been crowded into an Airbnb over the last couple of days uh, amid snowy Toronto, trying to finish and grind out the last two innings of our book. So, uh, you know, we're launching February 10th. So um, shameless self-promotion here. But I think a lot of the things that we're talking about on this uh, webcast um, certainly factor into our orientation about where is this world beyond innovation? And, and just saying, we started off with a one-on-one -on -one basketball, which was not part of my plan, but thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought you'd buy it. Uh, um, no comment. I thought yeah, so. no comment. Moving on. <laughs> uh, we are anointing come January a set of 66, um, kind of, I guess we'll call them our guild, um, if you will. And hopefully they can function both selfishly for themselves and for the good of the collective in terms of an expert network and some collaborative um, stuff that we've got um, that we want to get into. We are doing two other webcasts today. So um, for those that are listening, even our panelists, uh, we're going to talk about um, experience engagement, tech and platforms next uh, about an hour from now. And then we're also going to talk about uh, business models, ecosystems, talent and transformation later in the day. All of these over the next two days will be online at um, feedproofingx.com at feedproofing now. We've got our two January uh, topics already picked out. Myself and Andrew are doing kind of a state of the union 2020 and then AI later in the month. And then uh, just uh, from an overall question standpoint, and maybe I'll, I'll throw it out to all of you just because um, I think all of you have a piece of this. Um, technology, you know, I think um, we all hear the headlines about AI. Um, with your respective categories, you know, I can't, I can't imagine somebody emerging over the next decade that doesn't have um, some type of technology embedded into what they're doing. Um, I guess I'll just throw it out to all of you um, in the last minutes that we have in terms of, um, you know, how does that factor into each one of your different categories? I, I'll make a comment. I, I hope that the power of AI is used by people to make uh, work better and customer experiences better, as opposed to just being used for automation and efficiency. Bravo. A nicer, friendlier, non-evil version of AI. Yeah, I, I want, I think we are at a, at a place in, uh, in time when uh, work does not have to be, productive work does not have to be as routinized and uh, standardized and automated as it has in the path in order, in the, in order to be profitable. So we'll see how that leads. But I think, uh, you know, I, I have a hope that we won't just turn toward the use of AI to displace people, but the use of AI to make work uh, better. Nice. And Any on that point, work? yeah, on that point, I mean, I think it's important to understand too that despite being, you know, the tech revolution or whatever that you want to call it, we, we have to look as, as a business, as a brand, how do we actually build a foundation with the tech? It's not just a fad because if it's, if you're looking at it as, something short-term, it's a fad, it's gonna be gone, it's gonna disappear. If you sort of look at how can you integrate that technology into a foundation of the business, like some of these examples that I talked about, that's where the businesses are gonna see the success. And Mark, do you wanna wrap us up? Yeah, real quick, from, uh, from a growth perspective, I would give two counter, counterintuitive uh, thoughts on technology. One is that it's largely commoditized 
if every bank in the world is working on distributed ledger or blockchain, who's going to get competitive advantage from it, right? They're all working on it. It's all commoditized. We can read about it. Um, so it's commoditized. Uh, secondarily, uh, you don't have to be first. I think all of the companies that create massive uh, value, massive growth, weren't actually first, right? Before Google, we had about a dozen you know, search engines. And before, before the iPhone and, and Android, we had Motorola, Nokia, and RIM. And, and before Airbnb, we had Gites de France. And Gites de France has been you know, happening for 40 years in France, right? So you don't have to be first with this technology. You can actually lag 10, 20, 30 years and just build something better where those that first launched that technology just did a lousy job with it. Well, I'm going to close us out. This was much more interesting than even I had thought. It was examples that I hadn't heard of, which I feel like I'm usually a big uh, fan of all of these topics, and I learned a lot. I found myself um, having a lot of ahas, you know, this notion of what, what resonates in a local community, especially I, I have this fear that size, you know, like China wins this battle and another geographic region wins this other battle. But I think some of the themes of, you know, being local can still have huge, huge power and the notion of, you know, an energy company that has a huge regional footprint that becomes a global player changes, you know, people who change their direction and do it successfully. And it not just because they're big to begin with. I think that this is very inspiring to me in terms of the leadership message that we keep hearing people need desperately, which is what do we do in 2020? You know, how do we as company X move forward and think differently so that we can have new opportunities to grow and add value and have impact? And I, I, I'm super excited. I think this was an amazing panel and I love the diversity of all of your opinions. And thank you so much for being opinionated. <laughs> bring so much richness to the conversation. So thank you so much. And when we close, we, um, we stop the session and we unfortunately can't stay on the line, but we'll write to you because um, it, it, as we record this, we like to have kind of a clean, a clean ending. So thank you very much. And we'll be in touch soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.